Hey everybody, this is Ben, your host for Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board Review podcast. If you listened to last week's episode, you'll know we did part one of acute anterior uveitis. We're back this week for part two. If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, I'd go back and listen. This picks up right where it left off. Now back to the show. The next thing we're going to mention, not because it's really frequent, but it's impo- we couldn't really shoehorn this anywhere else, is, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, tubulo-interstitial nephritis and uveitis syndrome, or TINU, TINU. The constellation of findings here are pretty, I'd say, easy to remember, easy to when when you know about it, but if you're not thinking about it, it's something that could be missed easily. It's something that affects usually young women around the age of 21 or so, and it happens to both eyes, where you, both eyes get non-granulomatous anterior uveitis. It's accompanied, as the name would suggest, with an abnormal serum creatinine and increased urine beta-2 microglobulins to reflect that. Uh, it's, the patients will also usually have a flu-like systemic illness, but thankfully it responds well to oral steroids. So if you have a young woman with urinary complaints and eye complaints, think of TINU. Yeah, especially if it's bilateral. You know, it's also important to highlight this disease because it's typically not just local therapy, i.e. topical drops that will help to treat the patient. They almost always need oral steroids, especially because they have these systemic manifestations such as their renal pathology. And they'll obviously need a nephrology consultation or at least consultation with their primary provider to help control and monitor their kidney function. So if, they have a bi- if you have a young woman with bilateral anterior uveitis and possibly flu-like systemic symptoms, then definitely consider TNU. And the kind of buzzword to remember for for the boards or OCAPs is getting a urine beta-2 microglobulin. One other thing that's high yield for, for those tests is they are not HLA-B27 positive. They're HLA-DRB1 positive, DRB1. I don't have a great mnemonic for that. So if anyone in the audience does, I would love it. But here we are. Here we are. Okay. So that's it for TNU. Uh, Andrew, you know, I've read a lot about or hear a lot about Posner Schlossman as a differential frequently. What the heck is it? Nobody really knows. Oh. At least oh. nobody really knows what causes it. But we can tell you what you'd expect to see in a person who'd have it. Um, one thing to know, it's actually really rare. Uh, there's been a patient in our clinics lately that uh, our attendings thought for a little bit might have Posner Schlossman. I kept getting, I kept hearing, Andrew, this is the one time in the next 30 years you'll probably see this. And it turned out probably wasn't. But <laughs> if it had been, <laughs> this is what we would expect. We'd expect a mild amount of uveitis with just very kind of mild, fine keratic precipitates in one eye that comes and goes, that's recurrent. The intraocular pressure is significantly elevated and the angle is completely open. So, People have thought, well, this must be related somehow to some kind of trabecular meshwork dysfunction then. And it's been hypothesized that it might be a viral-mediated dysfunction, like CMV. Again, the herpetic viruses have been really pointed to at this. This is a causative link that has never been established. So when it's treated, really, you do all the usual things to control the intraocular pressure, the eye drops that you need to bring that down. But also, it's pretty responsive to steroid drops, thankfully. Again, from the presumed or possible link to a viral cause, some people will also treat with antivirals at the same time. Thankfully, it doesn't seem like this is the sort of glaucomatous or 
high IOP problem that leads to a lot of long-term sequela, but it is something that is going to be tough to get rid of because it comes back so often. Often, when you read about or learn about positive Schlossman, you also learn about Fuchs heterochromic uh, iridocyclitis, which is somewhat similar in some aspects and very different in other aspects. This is also a cause of unilateral interuveitis. However, while folks with positive Schlossman will often have some amount of symptoms, as mild as they may be, in Fuchs, they usually have no symptoms and sometimes just very minimal symptoms. The typical findings that they'll have are they can develop glaucoma because they can have intraocular pressure increases. They often get cataracts from the chronic inflammation. Now, here's the thing that helps differentiate this from other diseases. They have diffuse KPs. So while we said before, most anterior will deposit our KPs in uh, the inferior part of the cornea, actually in this triangle called the Triangle of Arlt, um, which is kind of this pizza pie that that encompasses the bottom um, couple clock hours of the of the cornea in Fuchs they have pretty evenly distributed diffuse KPs that's why it's important to look at distribution they can also have irostromal atrophy so they'll appear to have heterochromia classically the affected eye is lighter in pigment However, it's it's possible to have pigment deposited within the iris as well so it's possible to be darker but usually classically it's a lighter colored eye and I've heard people describe the iris as even appearing kind of moth-eaten in appearance, too, in keeping with what Ben's saying. Right. Um, some people say that classically is kind of like flattened, like there's not as many crypts, like it's because of the lack of the, the, just the loss of tissue from this disease. So to, to help diagnose, the key three things to look for are diffuse KPs, heterochromia, and a lack of symptoms on behalf of the patient. Just to complete the idea, if someone has diffuse KPs, the other thing to think consider on the differential is um, herpetic diseases, like herpes zoster, herpes simplex, which is causing a uveitis. Um, again, this is thought to potentially have some causative link to the herpetic viruses and also rubella, actually, um, and cytomegalovirus. Again, nobody's really sure. The parts of therapy that are less controversial, of course, are... And this is another distinction from between Fuchs iridocyclitis and Posner-Schlossmann. Whereas Posner-Schlossmann was very steroid responsive and therefore hard to wean off steroids, uh, Fuchs iridocyclitis doesn't really matter. Like the steroids aren't going to do much and they don't really need them. In fact, you just have to control the eye pressure if that's been elevated as well in these cases. Right. Even though these patients have chronic cell in their anterior chamber, they actually usually do pretty well. There's, except for the glaucoma that can develop, you know, they don't have other signs of chronic inflammation inside the eye. However, like we said before, they do get glaucoma and cataracts. One thing to really think about when you're doing a cataract surgery for these patients is you can develop something called Amsler's sign. Amsler's sign is where you make your main wound or your paracentesis into the anterior chamber and then you get bleeding. And you think, well, why do they have bleeding? The reason is, if you do gonioscopy on these patients, often they'll have these bridging vessels that cross over the trabecular meshwork onto the cornea. So when you make your wound, you'll break those vessels and cause bleeding. Then um, we'll move on to another possible etiology for acute anterior uveitis. Another is Bichette's disease. So Dr. Bichette was a Turkish physician who discovered this Bichette's disease, also known as Adamantiades Bichette's all due respect to those names, I'm not even going to try again to mispronounce. But in keeping with that, this was a disease that's actually was fairly common in that area of the world. So in what's said to be the old Silk Road, 
and Turkey is sort of at the epicenter of it. But that's one where, in addition to anterior uveitis, you have other systemic findings that help clue you into this particular diagnosis, including ulcers, oral aphthous ulcers, genital ulcers, and then there's also erythema nodosum as well. Yeah, the one key to diagnosing Bichette's is to recognize that they almost always have oral ulcers. So it's something around between 90 to 99% of Bichette's patients will have oral ulcers. Other um, ocular manifestations besides acute anterior uveitis in Bichette's patients are retinal vasculitis as well as accompanied by retinal hemorrhages. So if you have a patient with anterior uveitis that either has a hypopion, because this is one of the two anterior uveitides that can cause uh, a hypopion, then, uh, and, and, or they have retinal vasculitis, then it's probably worthwhile to ask them, the patient about their mouth or examine their mouth to look for oral ulcers. Whether you look elsewhere for ulcers is up to you. <laughs> and then, uh, one more thing that is often covered in things like OCAPs or boards is it's a B51 related disease. So HLA. B51, sorry, thank you. It's an, it's an HLA B51 um, related disease. There's also drug-induced. So for the next cause, drugs can cause anterior uveitis. The The one to remember really is rifampin, which we mentioned before, is that can classically sometimes cause even a hypopion with how significant the uh, anterior uveitis is. Also, fourth-generation fluoroquinolones, especially oral moxifloxacin, can classically cause an anterior uveitis. There's this whole list of drugs that are commonly known to possibly cause anterior uveitis, I have a mnemonic that isn't the best, but it's board TM, so B O R E D, and then TM, or maybe Mount Board is better, like the the mountain of boredom. Those so those are moxifloxacin, uh, travaprost apparently can cause intrauveitis in some cases. Bisphosphonates. There's some reports that OCPs or oral contraceptives can. Rifampin, which we just discussed, a tanercept, interestingly, even though it's supposed to be an immunomodulator, has been reported to cause it, as well as... <laughs> I almost made it. I almost made it. Um. Oh, DEC. And the last one is DEC, which was an older um, parasite medication, which maybe we use in some some cases. And that's one of our mnemonics for drug-induced uveitis. Mount Board, M-T-B-O-R-E-D. Moving on, another reason why you'd have inflammation in the front of the eye might just be that anterior segment lacking enough blood. So a a response to ischemia is inflammation, actually. Now, that could be a lack of blood flow for anatomic reasons, if there's some kind of carotid insufficiency, or it could be iatrogenically caused. So if you have really aggressive at least more aggressive strabismus surgery done, like, yeah, as Ben's saying, where multiple muscles are transected. Each thing is, each of those muscles, each of those rectus muscles has these anterior ciliary vessels coursing through them, hitching a ride on their way to the anterior segment. So if you're doing more than two muscles at a time, you're risking the anterior segment's blood supply. Uh, Scleral buckles have also been implicated in maybe squeezing some of this in a squeezy way. Uh, the <laughs> squeezy way. Squeezy, squeezy. Yeah, I'll leave the Squeezies. scleral buckles to Squeezies you, Squeezies for ears. <laughs> Squeegees. <laughs> okay. Um, 
some unique, distinct signs with this sort of vascular or ischemic insufficiency is flare out of proportion to the amount of cell you see, as well as uh, corneal edema and low intraocular pressure. Exactly. Just to comment on scleral buckles, classically, the anterior segment ischemia will happen if they have sickle cell. The thought is that the compression from the buckle on the muscles will cause a sickling crisis, and then that will cause anterior segment ischemia. However, as you mentioned before in our sickle cell episode, not all retinal surgeons will treat sclerobuckles as an absolute contraindication in sickle cell patients. Some will still do it, but at least for board's purposes, it's good to know about. So there's a there's um, kind of three more classes of interuveitis that we'd like to cover, but they each deserve their own episode. So we'll just kind of um, talk about them briefly here. There's the lens-related ones, inclu- including UG syndrome or uveitic glaucomatous hyphema syndrome. There's post-op uveitis, as well as a couple types of lens-induced uveitis. We'll cover all those in, an- in another episode. There's also juvenile idiopathic arthritis, which is often has ocular manifestations in uveitis. Which, well, this is its own episode, as well as a couple of infections such as syphilis, which we've already covered, TB, herpes, and toxoplasmosis. And finally, we'll do a whole episode on ocular sarcoidosis in the future. Okay. Okay, so there's your grab bag for anterior uveitis. How to manage these? We've kind of been talking about each individual one and its specific management plan. But in general, you want to get a good history of all their systemic symptoms. Now, the big thing is what kind of workup should you do? Um, some tricks that we have, we always just have like, smart phrases filled with the usual labs that we'll send if we're suspicious that a particular thing is going on. If it's if it's just unilateral, it's the first time they've ever had it, then you can just treat it. You don't have to send the workup is the common um, accepted practice. And also, if they already know they've got a systemic disease, then you don't really have to go hunting for it as much. You can just treat Sometimes your history can kind of help winnow out and narrow down some of those labs you send. But in general, the ones you always have to do, especially if it's a bilateral process, a granulomatous uveitis, or a recurrent one, you definitely have to make sure that your workup for sarcoid, syphilis, and tuberculosis is all in there because you don't want to miss those. So then finally, we'll we'll talk about treatment. So the mainstay treatment is steroids. That helps to control the inflammation that we've been talking about. At our institution, we usually start with prednisolone acetate fairly frequently, depending on how severe it looks. Maybe Q2 hours, Q1 hours at first. And then, then you, you taper it down slowly as you see that the inflammation is, is improving. If there's no improvement, then you may have to consider systemic steroids or other means of c- controlling inflammation. In addition, you can use cycloplegics. Because one that helps to prevent the formation of synechiae, which is essentially scarring inside the eyes, as, as well as help to reduce the pain associated with light sensitivity in patients with uveitis. Lastly, if the uveitis has any elevated intraocular pressure component, you want to use IOP lowering drops and even some of the oral carbonic anhydrase inhibitors if you have to. But what you want to avoid specifically is pilocarpine. It is going to weaken and kind of the weaken the integrity of the blood ocular barrier. So you're already dealing with an inflammatory problem. You don't want to make it worse by letting the blood communicate even more openly with all the like stuff that's floating around in the eye. 
Okay, so to review, we this uh, this episode we talked about acute anterior uveitis. We first helped to define anterior uveitis by discussing a terminology to describe its acuity, laterality, and granulomatous nature, as well as its um, anatomic location. Then we talked about some of the signs and symptoms of anterior uveitis, including looking for things like ciliary flush, cell flare, location of KPs, hypopion, and iris nodules. We talked about some of the causes of anterior uveitis, including the HLA-B27s, TNU syndrome, Posner sloshman syndrome, Fuchs heterochromic iridocyclitis, Bichette's, and and more. <laughs> we, more episodes to come. With more episodes to come. <laughs> Thanks. And then uh, for management, we talked about the workup that you should do to summarize, if it's a if it's a first unilateral acute episode, then you can often just monitor. Or if you know that they have a systemic disease that would cause anterior uveitis, such as sarcoidosis, then you can also just treat. Otherwise, if it's a recurrent episode, bilateral or granulomatous, then you should do um, then you should initiate a systemic workup. Then we finished off by talking about treatment, including cycloplegic steroids and IOP control. Okay. That's all we have for this week. If you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at Eyes4Ears with a number four. That same handle applies for our Instagram account as well, where I need to take more funny pictures of Ben. That's pretty easy to do. That's not and, the uh, website right now. <laughs> the website is also at com with the number four. On that, as well as anywhere where we post these things, they, we have a survey, actually, that you can help us fill out describing how you use the podcast and how you feel it's been helpful or not. (laughs) There's a $100 uh, Amazon gift card raffle we're doing for it as well. And we'll hold the survey open for another two and a half months or so, and you can find it again on the website or anywhere where we're posting these episodes. Okay, and that's all we have for this week. See you guys next time. Bye. Bye.